Okay, we're going to make a start um, for this second session. Uh, so we've set up a huge fight between the early moderns and the modernists uh, to see who wins. Uh, so ten rounds, uh, clean fight, everyone. And we're going to start with uh, Rory Lockman, who's from University of Kent, who is electronically modern, and you're involved in the new Shakespeare. Yes. Right? So, over to Rory. You should be a handout for the round. People get a copy of that. Can everyone hear me? Uh, so, um, good morning. Um, thanks to, or afternoon, thank you to Carol and Roger for the invitation to be here. Um, it's a real pleasure to speak about editorial work. Um, I don't get to often. Um, it's an area of research that's often overlooked or dismissed. It's sometimes reduced to practices of formatting um, or the collation of historical uh, recommendations, or for the early modern texts that I work with, uh, to practices of modernization and standardization, or to dreary bibliographical descriptions of compositor shifts and press periods. Now, all of these are parts of editing, it's true, but they form only some of the more visible uh, elements of the editorial project. There are some practice-specific skills, um, but the reality is that many of the, are the same as in traditional um, literary criticism. So first and foremost among these is close reading. Uh, you simply cannot amend a text without any, with any authority unless you are adept at this practice, I think. It's not simply about understanding the text, it's about under, understanding the text so well as to know when it deviates from your expectation um, as a reader. Now this is sometimes a judgment call as a close reader, and this judgment is sometimes swayed by additional evidence you can bring to bear on any text you are reading. In my opinion, the most important evidence you can use in preparing an edited text is authorship. If you can tell who wrote what, when, why, and how, you're in a pretty sound position as an editor. Now this is a relatively easy, this is relatively easy for those undisputed canonical solo texts uh, by one author. You know who the primary solo author is, so you can focus in on any deviations from your standard practice. And bring the weight of your experience as a close reader, so you be familiar with that person, um, as well as the comparative body of the rest of their solo works, uh, fully bear on your editorial decision. But what do you do if you don't know who wrote a little part of the text, a passage or a section of the work? How could you trust your close reader to be correct? And what external evidence could you bring to support your decision making? Um, in today's talk, I'm going to focus primarily on the connection between authorship studies and early modern editing, and how recent findings about early modern practices of co-authorship have played a role in the editing of certain early modern plays. I do so because it's an area I feel comfortable with in speaking about in relation to the larger project I was involved with. So for the past six years or so, I've worked on, and I continue to work, as an associate editor of the New Oxford Shakespeare. Um, I'll re-bring this up here. Um, in this edition, which was research-led, uh, my colleagues and I sought to actively investigate the evidence for the authorship of Shakespeare's plays. Now, uh, the New Oxford Shakespeare formed four parts. There's the first, which was published in November, November of last year, was the modern critical edition. Um, and this has, like, as Catherine said in the opening um, uh, talk this morning, um, <coughs> these modern critical editions are 
they're student-focused. They're these very firmly aimed as students, uh, that market, also the market of performers. It's a teaching text. There's heavy annotation, there's performance notes on the side of it, and it's already put on the syllabus, uh, Kent and elsewhere. Um, and it's available also in cheap, uh, cheaper um, uh, paperback copies. So this is the, the goal of it. The one that is interesting to the scholars is the two-volume critical reference edition on the left-hand side, which is exorbitantly expensive. It's about £400. Um, and I'll come back to the, the differences between the two, but that's an original spelling, the critical reference edition. And then the third part is this authorship companion, which came out in April. And this is a collection of 25 essays about authorship issues related to Shakespeare. And then we're still at work, and 2020 <laughs> might be hopeful um, on the alternative versions. And I'm glad that I kind of brought up the idea of versioning an alternative version. I'll, I'll explain what that is as well. We don't have a cover yet. Um, we don't know what it's going to look like. Okay. So, um, before I get into it, I think it's actually um, pretty important to talk about authorship a little bit. Uh, about the new findings uh, about authorship. So, for the companion, for the blue part, uh, my colleague Gary Taylor and I, we co-authored a book-length essay, it's the final essay, it's 200 pages long, at the end of this ownership companion, about the canon and chronology of Shakespeare's works. So we tried to determine the specific ordering for each of the works um, attributed to Shakespeare. Uh, we tried to uh, note all of the evidence to exclude certain works from the canon of Shakespeare. Um, and we tried to set out the grounds for what we included in the overall edition. So, I mean, can I just talk about for a second, because um, I haven't included this, but I think it's important to, to do so. Um, oh, so this is yesterday's talk. There's a Black Prince conference in Canterbury. Um, okay, so the Shakespeare canon is made of up primarily the centre of it is the 36 plays we find in the first folio printed in 1623. Um, there's no reason to doubt Shakespeare's involvement in each of these plays. The reason, the primary reason being so is that uh, it was produced by two of his friends who he worked, two colleagues, ex-colleagues of his uh, from the uh, King's Men, who went to the potentially financially ruinous decision of bringing out a folio collection of his work seven years after his death. Um, most people associate these plays as being central to the Shakespeare canon. It is Shakespeare's face um, on uh, uh, the title page. It has Shakespeare's name, his comedies, histories, and tragedies. But it also, um, it's also a bit of a, uh, a bold claim to say this is just Shakespeare's works. For uh, one quarter of the plays in the first folio are um, co-authored, at least one quarter. So Titus Andronicus is co-authored with George Peel, 2 and 3 Henry VI um, uh, involved the writing of Christopher Marlowe, 1 Henry VI involves the writing of Nash and Christopher Marlowe, Measure for Measure, All's Well and Macbeth are adapted after Shakespeare's death by Thomas Middleton, Town of Athens is co-authored with Thomas Middleton, and Henry VIII, or if I explained I think all is true, is a collaboration between John Fletcher and William Shakespeare. Now we know also that this doesn't give us the full canon of Shakespeare's works, right? Because it's admitted, it admits the, the long poems, the two narrative poems, uh, Venus and Adonis and the Raven of the Crucible, so it admits all of the sonnets. So we know that the Shakespeare canon isn't complete from the first folio of the plays. But it's incomplete in other ways, too. 
Um, the reason it's highlighted is because we were, we were in a conference on the end of the third. Um, so, Shakespeare's other co authored plays. The new uh, attribution of the new author Shakespeare is Ireland of Alberton, um, with Anonymous. Edward III, with Anonymous, the book of Sir Thomas More, which has a very difficult textual history. Pericles, Prince of Tyre, which is a collaboration with the um, wife eating brothel owner George Wilkins, who retired from playwriting after this uh, collaboration with Shakespeare. Two uh, Noble Kingsman with John Fletcher is published in 1634. Another new edition of New Oxford Shakespeare is five editions, additions, not editions, additions to a later printing of the Spanish tragedy. At least one of these additions is by uh, Shakespeare. And then we have a play um, called Double Falsehood, um, uh, written by Leo, Louis Theobald, which is an adaptation of an earlier play called Cardenio, which is a collaboration between Shakespeare and John Fletcher. So we add these to the the dramatic canon, it comes to 43 plays. Of these, some 40% are co-authored. So, my point here at the beginning is that we've, we've changed our view of Shakespeare. We're dispelling this notion of Shakespeare as a solo author, um, this removed from the processes of collaborative writing, and we're moving much more towards this model of Shakespeare involved in a community of writers. Now, how does this matter to <clears throat> Editing and studies in attribution, um, though often separated as tasks, have a significant affinity. Both practices seek to identify what an author may have written. Uh, for an attribution scholar, this is the primary goal. For an editor, they cannot undertake many basic tasks of editing without some prior knowledge of authorship. A principal role of an editor is to amend errors uh, found in the text, as happened. This morning. The first stage in this process is to determine whether or not an error actually exists. You're seeking words or phrases that make little or no context in your surroundings. You then attempt to identify the source of that error. Knowledge of the transmission of the text can help your identification of that source. Knowledge of the parties involved in printing, such as scribes and depositors, can also help. But identifying the source of the error does not necessarily enable you to make a reliable recommendation. That is, substituting a word or a phrase for what you think is erroneous in the printed text. The most helpful there is a knowledge of the author of him or herself. And in my period, it's primarily himself. And this is where editing and attribution uh, studies are So over the course of the next 40 minutes or so, we're going to move from some examples drawn from Shakespeare's co-authored works to examples from a solo uh, works uh, to get a sense of the different practices at play in terms of editing Shakespeare and non-Shakespeare. So, um, let's get this. All right, so one thing you should know about uh, the features of the new Oxford Shakespeare. So, um, Catherine this morning talked about um, eclectic editing. Um, which is a conflationary practice whereby you introduce uh, uh, words or phrases from uh, multiple versions of a single text, of, of a single play or work. This is a single text edition. So um, every work that's included in the New Oxford Shakespeare is based upon one textual representation of that work. So for example, there's three versions of Hamlet, Q1, uh, uh, sorry, uh, uh, the, sorry, the, four, the, the three versions of Hamlet in terms of Q1, Q2, and the folio text, we include the second quarter text. 
Um, our reasoning for the single text edition is that we're trying to reject those new bibliographical claims that underpinned the 1987 edition of the old Oxford Shakespeare, uh, where they um, drew in um, um, passages and phrases from other texts in quite radical ways. And the new Oxford Shakespeare was heavily criticized when it came out in the 80s. Now, one of the general editors of the old Oxford Shakespeare, Gary Taylor, is still the general editor of the new Oxford Shakespeare. And um, because of the protests that, were, that came up against the old Oxford Shakespeare in the, in the 80s, it, it didn't have the 100-year lifetime that uh, was claimed for editions um, uh, by Catherine earlier. Um, there was a real sense that there needed to be an overhauling of it. And nobody involved in new Oxford Shakespeare believes that this edition is going to stand the test of time either. It's very likely we'll have another new, new Oxford Shakespeare 25 years from now, um, which is encouraging in the sense that you know, people are, will continue to return to these issues of, um, of text over the next few decades, but it's also um, dismaying as someone who worked for a long time on these, on these, on these plays. It's uh, from the ground up edition, um, so that we begin with the, the, the one single text, um, and we make a, um, how we produced the text in terms of its transcription was that we used um, various um, uh, software to uh, compare digital transcripts of the text, and then we went through it word by word, and um, punctuation mark by punctuation mark to make sure it was accurate. It was a team of international contributors, so there's four general editors from the UK uh, and America, there's three associate editors, and two, two assistant editors. Um, myself, um, another associate editor, Anna Pruitt, Gary Taylor, who's the lead general editor, and Terry Boers, who's one of the general editors, shared an office. Uh, which had, well, four-roomed four office space, I suppose, um, for, for years. Uh, we're still, we're coming out of it now a little bit. Um, this, this, it, was, it was rough. Um, long hours, all you're doing is thinking about issues related to emendation and whether or not our practices are going to stand up to scrutiny. And uh, the work, in, as I, I mentioned at the beginning, rethought the canon and chronology of the works. Um, if you know anything about the new Oxford Shakespeare, it will be because of the interest when it was published last November about the attribution of certain parts of the Henry VI plays to Christopher Marlowe. Um, so this rethinking of the canon um, in terms of taking stuff away from Shakespeare, and this is a team of editors made up of Americans and Irish people who were taking something away from Shakespeare <laughs> didn't go down pretty well. Um, there's also an increased attention to book history, print variants, and corrections. Um, uh, in the critical reference edition, uh, the long extended textual introductions for each play pay much more attention than um, preceding editions by Oxford, Cambridge, or whoever else. We offered both original spelling and modernized text for each play. So I edited 10 plays in the edition, which meant I edited 20 plays, because um, we had 10 in original spelling and then 10 modernized. So 43, 43. Uh, the modern edition, uh, <coughs> innovative, well, fairly innovative, uh, introductory material, which was a bricolage of quotations. So before each play, rather than offer one subjective, uh, critical account uh, in terms of a critical introduction to the play. 
uh, we decided that instead we would draw together a, a cluster, a bricklayer as we call it, of quotations from writers over the past 400 years, how they have responded to each of these individual works. So we're offering up, we're trying to make it um, uh, dialogic rather than monologic. Um, then there's also a timeline that's offered for how that play fits into the rest of Shakespeare's career and information boxes. And then we have glossarial notes, which are those annotations that Catherine mentioned at the bottom of the page to help out student readers. But also we have performance notes, which are paying more attention to issues. Really, performance. Um, we're going to go to our first uh, example from the handout. So if you, if you want to um, look at uh, <coughs> The first, the, the first uh, number one on the handout. So, um, the first play I edited um, on the edition was Titus Andronicus. Um, anyone read Titus Andronicus here? It's pretty brutal stuff, right? Um, so, uh, what we did um, was we divided the play up into five parts. And five, five, as a group, we group edited Titus Andronicus. Uh, trying to take it very seriously as a, as a text and trying to take the issues of co-authorship seriously. I edited the long opening scene which has been attributed to George Peel. Um, so my first editing work on the Noir of Shakespeare was actually editing someone other than Shakespeare. So I was editing Peel. Um, and looking at how Peel's work um, could be edited as a, as a, as a, um, as a unit in itself. So, um, since the 19th century, the play had been suspected of being co-authored. Um, and since the end of the 20th century, there had been a growing consensus that at least part of the play was written by Peel. The problem was that even the major editions like Jonathan Bates for Arden, and Tyson was chosen as the first play in the Arden Tree series, and Jonathan Bates, a very distinguished scholar, edited it. Um, and even though he, was, uh, he dismissed the ownership claims at the time and thought the play was entirely written, by Shakespeare, he's reversed that position now and accepts that part of it is written by Peel. But what that means is that when he was editing that long opening scene at the beginning, he was editing it with Shakespearean um, precedents rather than Peelian. Right? So, um, and so too, even though the editors of the ORSC complete works, John Nate uh, again, and Eric Rasmussen admitted at that point in 2007 that Peel had part, uh, wrote part of the play. They didn't edit the play with that author in mind. Um, the recent Norton 2016 edition, um, which is uh, again admitted uh, Peel's co-authorship of play, again used um, Shakespearean comparison points for how they amended that long opening scene, and the Bedford didn't even make any mention of it. Um, Bedford did. Um, so, if we look at a line of Mitis. So here grow no down the drugs, here are no storms. Um, you wouldn't necessarily notice that there's anything wrong with it. I mean, you have the longer passage in your, in your handout. There's nothing wrong with that line in terms of drugs make sense, here grow no down the drugs makes no sense, or it makes perfect sense in the context. The problem is that the play of Tyson Dobronicus exists in four versions. Uh, the first quarto in 1594, there's two later quartos, and the folio uh, edition. And we're going to look at a dif uh, uh, difference between the first quarto and the third quarto. 
So in Q1, we have if lying, as you see on your hand there, here grow no damn drugs. And here we have here grow no damn grudges. Okay, so drugs or grudges. So all editors who have edited long with me seen before have at least noted this in their textual annotation. They said, okay, there's a variant in Q3. Big deal, right? Because people trust the, 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 the drugs reading from Q1 because there's no reason not to trust it. Um, this is uh, easily explained as this is uh, a mistake that crept into the third quarter of printing. So, both readings are intelligible. The similarity in spelling for words because it could cause some really simple misreading. And despite its uh, good sense, grow is not a term, uh, a verb that one typically associates with grudges. We might say that you could grow a grudge now, perhaps. You could say that, it would make sense. But in the early modern period, grow and grudge weren't typically collocated uh, together. So, I'll give you some examples. There's one that I could find uh, from 1626 in quite obscure text. and say that the line of the mother, the deputy took care to appease, so it would be difficult to reconcile grudges growing for government and dominion. Um, and Catherine mentioned earlier the use of early English books online. Well, really what, what you're using in early English books online is the text creation partnership part of um, early English books online, which is what provides a, a transcript of those early printed texts, which through Ebo, early English books, are just, um, uh, um, photostats of it. So the actual transcript is created through the text creation partnership. And through the TCP part of Ebo, you're able to um, search for collocations uh, in the periods within 10 words. So if you use, uh, if you find the word grudge, and you put grudge, G-R-U-D-G-E, and then you put an asterisk after, will allow for all searches of words, whether it's grudged, grudges, <coughs> grudging. Um, and likewise with the word with grow, you can put grow, um, asterisk, and it will deliver up results. And if those two words appear together within 10 words, appear together in a text within 10 words, and if the transcript in TCB is correct, and there's loads of problems with the transcripts in TCB, then it will produce results for it. Anyway, so this is the one example that I can give of grows and grudging in the period. The first quarto word, drugs, um, the reading in your handout, doesn't appear in any of Peel's extant undisputed work. However, grudge appears twice in the arraignment of Paris. Uh, then I, if you will, to avoid a tedious grudge, refer to the sentence of the judge. As for the appeasing the simplest grudge, in my conceit she hides the fittest judge. So two grudges, sorry, um, the internal repetition of grr, grow, and grudges also convinces. So two grudges seems to connect well in meaning with the swelling of envy in the preceding line. So based on Peel's use of grudge in his other work, I would therefore be inclined towards the reading in the third quarter, despite that printing's lack of authority, and despite the uncommon collocation of grow or grudge whereas other modern editors typically uh, accepted the reading in the first quarter. Am I right? Who knows? But using that uh, database evidence, at least it uh, gave me kind of a greater perspective on the possibilities of both readings being, being accurate or the possibility of that latter reading being the one that should be chosen. So later in the scene, we keep going with times and Later in the scene, Saturninus 
who is one of the bad guys in the place, I don't know, this is one of the two warring brothers, has this line, the change of cheer hath wrought this change, or change of war hath wrought this change of cheer. Um, the repetition of change in this line, though possible, seems suspicious of some form of transmission error, change, change. Only once in Edward I, does Peel use change as a noun followed by a possessive prepositional phrase? I never read but English and excelled for change of rare devices every way. As you'll see here, the second quarter um, changes the first change to chance. So the line becomes the chance of war have wrought this change of cheer. This, for me, was convincing because chance and war is a much more common association and collocation in Peel's works. Let's see. In Edward I, resolved, you see, but see the chance of war, now noticed thou traitor, and thou seest his head. Dwelling, callst thou this, this chance of war? And then in Battle of Alcazar, my lord, such chance is willful war affords. So, this is a Peelian phrase. He returns to it again and again. If you're editing the opening scene of Tazagronicus from a Shakespearean perspective, there would be no impetus to make that emendation. So, it's a really obvious example of how ownership matters. Uh, we're going to get to more fun ones in a second, I guess. So, um, and if you don't believe me, there's two more. Uh, he, on his part, will find the chance of war, a patient battle, this is chance of war. Why I have them slightly separate is that I think Peel is the, at least the primary author of Troublesome Rain. Um, but it's still disputed. So, uh, yeah. Now, um, let's turn to this. Just because you're editing a part of the play that's attributed to someone other than Shakespeare or someone other than the primary author that you're looking at, doesn't mean you have to lose sight of some of the more telling evidence in front of it. So one of the benefits of editing a lot of plays, a lot of works by one author, is that you begin to notice minor textual oddities. Shakespeare's a really odd author. He does certain things. After a while, you pick up on that um, other authors just simply don't do. Let me give you an example. As I was editing the long opening scene of Types of Dramatists with Peel in mind, I noticed an unusual outcropping of a distinctively Shakespearean stage direction in calling for a loft. See this? Enter the tri <coughs> tribunes and senators aloft, and enter aloft the emperor. Peel yeah. never uses aloft to indicate above space. Indeed, he never explicitly calls for the use of above space in any of his plays except for David and Bethsaida. And as uh, editors of stage directions in the period de uh, of the period of Desson and Thompson note, aloft as a stage direction is seldom used outside of the Shakespeare canon. Excluding Titus aloft is used as a stage direction, uh, uh, excluding Titus, the stage direction aloft is used seven times in the folio. So look at this. So taking up to Shrew, 1 Henry VI, 2 Henry VI, Richard III, mm -hmm. Romeo and Juliet, and Cleopatra twice. Okay. So there are seven instances outside of Titus Andromicus in all of the first folio. Um, in the first folio copy of Titus Andronicus, aloft is used three times within 300 lines. So too, the other call um, for movement into the above space, which we're going to look at in a second, has no analogue 
in the early modern drama outside of Shakespeare. So what I'm trying to get across is that not only is the wording extremely uh, rare, but Shakespeare's the only person to use it in a play, King of the Shrew, uh, which is performed in the professional theater in the Elizabethan period. So these are all of the other uses of aloft in any early modern play. So Shakespeare stands out as someone who uses it fairly regularly, seven times, apart from Thousand Andronicus across the entire first folio. But these are all of the other examples. Now, Gervais Markham and John Mason are not co-authors of Thousand Andronicus, so we can exclude them. So the anomalous use of um, Shakespeare's preferred form aloft uh, appeals part of the play. And now we're going to look at uh, an example. This is the other. You see uh, this phrase, go up into? They go up into the cenotaphs, which means they go into the back of the stage and go up to the aloft space. So keep this in mind. Um, this phrase, go up into, has no parallel elsewhere in all of early modern drama, except for in Antony and Cleopatra, um, where the, it isn't a stage direction, but it's an explicit direction within the text itself to get them to move up into the upper space. Stay home and let us hear Mark Antony. Let him go up into the public chair. So the anomalous use of Shakespeare preferred form aloft, appeals part of the play, and a Julius Caesar parallel for the stage movement prescribed by Go Up Into creates some unexpected Shakespearean noise. Right? So this is the entire part of this play is meant to be written by George Peel. Why is this outcropping? Why is there this outcropping of Shakespeare in so one part of the larger argument that develops from this is that Shakespeare might have likely revised some of the stage directions in what is substantively um, peeled scene. What this does is creates a split level effect. So our idea of the working order, uh, uh, or the process which brought about the text, uh, which underlies the first quarto of Tyson Rodicus, alters because of this finally. If Peel didn't write those terms aloft in the original text that he wrote, there was no prescription to use the above space. If Shakespeare likely revised it, adding these stage directions aloft, aloft, and go up into, he was writing these with thinking about a different performance space in mind, which had that, those two levels. But it gets even more exciting than this, because, because Shakespeare likely revises, presumably without peels, uh, input in it, it introduces the possibility that Peel and Shakespeare actually never collaborated. That Shakespeare took over um, an incomplete manuscript by Peel of that long opening scene. And it actually kind of makes sense when you think about it, because the long opening scene is 600 lines long, and then it just falls off abruptly. Um, and this is all that Peel contributes. Just press OK, it's alright, it's a constant burbeck problem. <laughs> so, through this really slight evidence that we find in the first quarter text in terms of the stage direction, that's unusual Shakespeare noise. We were able to trace back um, what actually might have contributed to the genesis of that text with the text underlying it. So, okay. Peel. We're done with Peel. Let's move on to Marlowe, the person everyone's more excited about. Um, seems they're frozen. So again. Uh, okay. So uh, on my more ambitious days, health-wise, um, I like to walk southwestwards or run southwestwards from Canterbury to a little town, a little, well, it's not really a town, it's a hamlet, uh, named Charton, which is about three miles away from Canterbury along the River Stour. 
Um, Charlton was one of the first villages I wanted to, to visit when I moved to Canterbury for the first time. Um, it's a really kind of beautiful, quaint locale in the Kent Downs, but for me it held a really special resonance, so I want to explain what that might be now. So if you're, all, if you're at all familiar with the new Oxford Shakespeare, it will be because of the Marlowe attribution. This was the news item which swallowed up everything else, to the dismay of everyone else in the project. Um, it really, really kind of sucked at the time, because it was the only leading newspaper item that went with it. Oh, they've attributed a part of the, part of the Shakespeare Channel to Marlowe, when there was loads of equally interesting findings. But Marlowe's box office, people care about Marlowe, so that, that's what it, it, it took over. So here, as you'll see, is Marlowe's identified for the first time as the co-author for the second part. So this also gives you a sense of the difference between the critical reference edition. So see in, in old spelling, so then hoboys or hoboes. Um, and then up top, we have the attribution. Shakespeare, Christopher Marlowe, an anonymous, revised by Shakespeare. And then here's the super student friendly one. Uh, <laughs> William Shakespeare, Christopher Marlowe, and others. Um, <laughs> where there's no kind of explanation of how those others came to contribute to the play. Um, but it's student-friendly, so that's what it's meant to be. Okay? And at least it contributes to, or at least because we give the alternative titles to it in terms of the second part of Henry VI or first part of the contention, at least suggests that there is some sort of textual um, issues underlying um, um, the edition. Okay, so, so, you should know that the play exists in these two versions. There is a 1594 uh, quarto uh, entitled The First Part of the Contention. Um, and it's a distinctly different version of the play that first appears in, uh, described as the second part of Henry VI in the first folio in 1623. So they're separated by 19 years. And the first part of the contention is about one third shorter. Um, than the folio version, and it's radically different in, 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 in all lots of ways. In our alternative versions volume, the one that I said is going to come out in 2020, maybe 2021, we're going to include a print edition which is going to be given a full textual apparatus, so uh, original spelling and modern spelling of this part, the first part of your contention. Whereas the version that you're reading here, which you would read here, is of the folio, folio text, which is the second part of Henry VI. So this is what I mean by single text edition. We edit one text, and then in the alternative versions, we're going to offer the other text. If that makes sense. I hope that makes sense. So critical interest in 206 has often centered on the, so there's the two versions. Uh, first part of your contention, um, and the second part of Henry VI, as it appears in the folio text. So critical interest in 2 Henry VI has often centered on the figure of Jack Cade. Have, have many of you read 2 Henry VI? Jack, uh, Jack, Jack Cade is a Kent rebel, uh, leads um, a rebellion from Kent to come into London, he strikes London stone, etc., etc. In the end, Rota Fortuna, he, he ends up dying in a, in a um, in the garden. But anyway, there's a lot of interest in this figure of Jack Cade, he's a firebrand rebel. So, in 206, in Jack Cade's first scene in the play, a version, and the version of the scene appears in both the quarter and the folio text, he punishes to choose, uh, he, punish, he chooses to punish a clerk from a village in Kent. Okay? So they, the, the rebels come in bringing forward this clerk of somewhere, and the, the weaver then says, the clerk of something, he can write and read. It's a really funny scene. 
because they punish him because he can write, because he can, because uh, he's literate, because he can read and write. And uh, Jack Cade says there's no need for people who are literate in the society he wants to bring about post rebellion. Um, and it ends up with the, the clerk being led off to be to be executed. So perhaps it wasn't that funny, but it's kind of humorous. Um, it is anti-intellectualism, which I, I think all this, you know, at the, in these present days, uh, we can uh, imagine some analog to that in uh, present politics. So anyway, the clerk comes in, and these are the two versions of it. Um, this is the, uh, the photo text, uh, enter a clerk, Weaver says, the clerk of Charlton. And uh, this is the entire passage that we're looking at here from the two, the two blue letters. So you see here clearly adverted that it's the clerk of Charlton. So in the folio version, there it is, the clerk of Charlton. In the 1594 text, it's the clerk of Chatham. Now, for people, and there's a few here from Kent today, people from Kent, they'll, they realize that there are two towns in Kent, one called Chatham and one called Charlton. So um, this is uh, Chartham, and this is Chatham, uh, up beside Gillingham. So, which is quite. Um, and I was trying to figure this out in an office in Indianapolis. Uh, one man moved to, to Kent, yeah, I was um, trying to figure out, looking at the map, going, um. So, the two towns, both southeast of London, are about 30 miles apart. Um, one editor, uh, Bill Montgomery, who edited it for the 1987 Oxford edition, he proposed that Cade gathered his followers as they passed through the towns. So they picked up a, a tanner from Wingham, a butcher from Ashford, and if you ever travel through Kent, you'll probably stop at Ashford, uh, to go to Chatham. Chatham, we'll turn it over. Chatham, on the other side, on the other hand, supposes them following a London bound course from Ashford in the centre. There, there's Ashford. London Bank course. Another editor observes that Charlton actually makes better sense because new followers would have travelled from um, surrounding towns in Kent to join Cade on his route to London. Now we don't know if Cade, the rebel in real life and history, actually went around to various towns to muster rebels, but we still have to make some sort of sense of the, the geography that we find in the play. And from a Shakespearean perspective, when we were read it with Shakespeare in mind, we'd be like, well, Shakespeare's from Warwickshire. Maybe he just didn't know that there was two towns in Kent and that this would lend some confusion. But when we start to suspect that Shakespeare actually isn't the author, and that the author instead is Christopher Marlowe, and Christopher Marlowe is from Canterbury in Kent, then this, this brings in this whole other dimension to the act of editing. So, Decayed scenes, if Marlowe is present in 206, which I believe he is, uh, where he is most obviously present is within decayed scenes, and this is one of the, 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 the major decayed moments. Um, if Marlowe is the author here, it raises the possibility um, that he is making a private joke, that uh, the killing off of some literate clerk from Charlton, a village which is three miles away from where he was born and raised, could be some sort of kind of private joke on the part of the author. If it's Shakespeare, then it could be just a geographical inconsistency. So, how to choose? Um, what I did choose in, in the edition was because based on the Marlowe attribution, was I went to Charlton rather than Chatham. 
Um, and there's other reasons given for it. But what I wanted to raise this today is to, to demonstrate how those issues around authorship actually make complex uh, the editorial decision making. So, having discussed some examples from Shakespeare's co-authoring works, let's move on to some of his big hits in his solo plays. So, um, so, I want to first look at Henry V, um, which I'm sure a lot of you have read. Um, so, there's a very famous scene in Henry V when there's a, an English, four captains meeting the field at, 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 before the battle um, and an Englishman, an Irishman, a Welshman, and a Scots. Um, and we're, we're going to look at that scene in some, some detail. But first of all, Romeo famously asks, What's in a name? Right? And the short answer is that there's sometimes quite a bit. As consumers of Shakespeare, we like to have our characters designated as clearly as possible. Wrestling with inconsistencies over character names is the province of editors, working from the earliest printed texts. But sometimes a character's name can actually fundamentally change how you read that character. So um, I also edited The Merchant of Venice. And in that play, the antagonist um, is named Shylock or Jew. Um, He's used, the, the speech prefix Jew is uh, used at a rate of two to one over the actual name of Shylock. So should one use as the speech prefix, then in a modern spelling edition, the character's name, which could be a primary or, uh, um, um, or surname, or should you use the ethno-religious marker of Jew? And what would that actually, how would, how would readers respond to using the speech prefix Jew, where there's only one character marked out by their religious identity and everyone else is given a first name. Um, and that's a big decision as an editor um, because uh, you know this is going to impact upon how people receive the play, how they understand the play. In the end, what I did was I um, introduced for the modern spelling edition the speech prefix Shalak Jew, because I was able to say, demonstrate that both, both names are used and this is a way of doing it. But the problem is, though, if you just call the character Jew, Shalom, just call him Jew, there's another Jewish character, there's at least one more Jewish character in the play, two balls Jewish. Jessica's daughter is nominally Jew Jewish as well. So how can one person be the Jew in a play with multiple Jewish characters? That's just one example of that um, speech prefixes um, cause confusion. Um, in Twelfth Night, um, Orsino, who uh, is called a count uh, 13 times, and he's called a duke four times. Now, is he a count or is he a duke? How, how could an editor decide whether he, which of these two titles? Clearly, the inconsistency is on the part of the author. But if you decide to amend each time where duke is used, because count is used more, more often, then you're <laughs> putting that upon, upon Shakespeare, and that's, that's clearly a, a bad move. In All's Well and Ends Well, there's a really interesting example. Bertram's mother goes by four different speech prefixes. She's variously mother as a speech prefix, lady, old lady, and countess. And the really interesting thing about the speech prefix is that it's determined by the context. So when Bertram's, the, the son, is speaking to his mother, she has the speech, pre speech prefix mother. But if she is acting as a countess, she has the speech prefix countess. So in Shakespeare's mind, writing those speech prefixes as they change, how he thought about the character also changed. Now, should we as editors preserve those alterations, or would that be really confusing for modern readers? Okay, now we'll move on to the name of editing. One area of critical interest for me is non-English perspectives 
of Shakespeare's work, particularly those of Celtic origins, so Scottish, Irish, Welsh, and Irish. So characters from such areas uh, sometimes present particular onomastic uh, difficulties for readers. For example, there's a Welsh um, captain named Fluellen um, who appears in Henry V. But who, we might ask, would ever have heard of the name Fluellen without Shakespeare's play? Fluellen isn't a name. It's Shakespeare's bastardization of Cluellen. He doesn't know how to spell Cluellen, so he writes Fluellen. Fluellen doesn't appear elsewhere in the period. There is no Fluellen outside of the printed text of the folio. The Welsh name, as much as the Welsh character, is the creation of an Englishman, Shakespeare. It has no pre-existence before Shakespeare's play. Its post-existence is entirely dependent upon Shakespeare's play, and its reproduction in editions and performances. In fact, there's only one other use of Fluellen uh, before Shakespeare in all, uh, all early modern printed writing that we can search for, and that's to the Herb, uh, Herb Veronics or Speedwell, which also goes by the name of Fluellen. This could not uh, a Welsh name. So the OED notes that the name itself, um, that even the name for the Herb Veronica, named Fluellen, is a corruption of, an English corruption of the Welsh name Fluellen. Sorry, it's going to be confusing. One editorial policy I sought to implement in Henry V, uh, in the modern spelling that is, is to produce a conspicuously international version of the play. I saw no ostensible merit in preserving customary non-modernizations and non-translations. So Fluellen became Cluellen, Mountjoy, which is just the English version of Mountjoy, uh, uh, Britain, Bretagne, uh, uh, Agincourt, or Agincourt. Right? So I, I produced this. Uh, if Shakespeare had the, my, my thinking about this was if Shakespeare had the choice, he would want to reproduce the actual original versions, but that could be, that could be challenged. But if that could be challenged, we can, we can see where I go next. What of Shakespeare's Irish captain? A fetishized figure in modern criticism if ever there was one. So we might know Shakespeare's Irish captain, Mac Morris, or Mac Morris. Editors since Rome have modernized his name as Mac Morris. Um, Mac Morris or Mac Morris. His speech prefix, as we see it in the play, uh, often reads Irish. Irish. Um, in the folio text, the, first, the character is first introduced as Mac Morris, and a K M O R or I C E. The speech prefix reads Irish, and the five times C is addressed to as Mac Morris. So this forms Mac Morris or Irish becomes Mac Morris or Mac Morris in all editions. And you might think this isn't a pretty large leap. This is just an obvious standardization, right? This is a modernization of a standardization. But it's not. The name is a Gaelicized surname based on Anglo-Norman patronymic Fitzmaurice. So the Christian name Mauritius came into Irish through Anglo-Norman as Murish. From an Anglo-Norman form of Morris, M-O-R-I-C-E, slash Morris, M-O-R-I-S, or such. The Anglo-Normans at, at the time used patronymics rather than surnames. So Morris Fitzgerald was Morris, son of Gerald. And Morris's son, Gerald, would be Gerald Fitzmaurice. 
Are you still with me here? <laughs> okay. I'll say it again. The Anglo-Normans at the time used patronymics uh, rather than surnames. So Morris Fitzgerald means literally Morris, <coughs> son of Gerald. And Morris, the son Gerald, would then become Gerald, <coughs> Gerald Fitzmorris. So the Irish were already using hereditary fixed surnames. So if we compare in English, James, who is Peter's son, is a patronymic, but James Peterson um, is a surname. Well, we nearly have time. So okay, I'll just do this example of two notes. So the Anglo-Normans now copied the Irish surnames by making Fitzmorris a surname um, Fitzmorris, and when they became Irish-speaking, they Gaelicized him as MacMurish. This is the standard spelling of that surname in Irish, but when English clerks, and this is the important point, when English clerks were trying to write Irish surnames, they had great difficulty. What's the variety of spellings they use? So who can say which of these is correct? There is no correct version. Morris, Morris, Morris. There is no correct version. But Shakespeare's spelling of MacMorris is the only use of that form before 1623. I found no evidence to suggest that Shakespeare purposely adopted a non-standard form to produce a pointedly anglicized variant. Further, the lack of distinction in spelling between first uh, stage directions and speech prefixes, and second, the names of spoken and dialogue, demonstrates that Shakespeare himself didn't differentiate between a standard authorial form and an anglicized pronunciation by English characters. So for Shakespeare, Matt Morris might have just seemed sufficiently Irish. In the English-speaking context of the scene, it's possible that Shakespeare was um, adopting what he thinks is a standardized English version of an Irish surname. But it's also possible that Shakespeare's MacMorris is a strained phonetic spelling like Fluel. So in my edition, I assigned the Irish form of the surname, MacMurish, to this character. And my view, as I expressed, was that the traditional editorial reluctance to adopt standard forms expresses a self-reinforcing Anglo-centric parochialism that diminishes the international flavor of Shakespeare's conspicuously, insistently international play. Now, I gave a talk about this at one of our great grand old universities, um, and I was, what, the first question I got afterwards, are you not trying to produce a Sinn Féin version of Henry <laughs> <laughs> But the logic behind it was actually, um, it's completely unbiased. And it was interesting what Catherine said this morning about how editors bring their own uh, agenda to, to what, they, what they do. But if I'm to introduce clue Ellen for flu Ellen, I have to look for what would be the uh, equivalent representation of that within the, the original language. And to introduce Matt Murrish is actually just standard editorial policy. I'll leave it there. I had a couple more examples, but I'll, I'll leave it there. But I'm trying to get across here that, as in, sometimes editors can also be accused of bias where they're actually just trying to produce a standard. And mm. live up to that. Brilliant. So, thank, thank you, Louis. Uh, so we're going to move over to um, Scott McCracken and
and uh, Joe Winning, our colleague. So Scott is a professor at Queen Mary's. Uh, Joe Winning uh, is our colleague here at Birkbeck. And they're both involved in a massive Dorothy Richardson multi Dorothy Richardson project letters, uh, editions, and so on. Uh, and so we're going to hand over to them to hear about that. Thanks, Scott. Just to say that in a fight between the modernist textual editors and the early modern textual editors, it's not a fair fight because um, early modern textual editing is in such a sort of state of maturity that they're really heavyweights and we're very much uh, featherweights. Uh, I mean, with, with, a, with a very few exceptions, um, joycing scholars and in fact um, people like Wynne, uh, modernist textual editing is, is at a much earlier stage than early modern textual editing. Um, and that means um, that for people like Joe and I, we, we came to it as literary critics, and we are still very much novices, and I'm afraid I won't be able to give you the scientific or forensic kind of approach that Catherine insisted upon in quite the same way. Um, but uh, that said, um, um, I'm actually, and I'm actually going to talk about a very, very, very small thing, but it, it does link very nicely with, with what Catherine was saying and also with what Rory was was saying, um, because I am going to look at the question of the base text or the copy text, um, and I'm also going to look at the relationship between the idea of the author's intention and that question of ideology, and actually I'm going to talk about internationalism, so it fits very well with what Rory, Rory um, was talking about as well. Um, but just first of all then, um, a little bit of background um, uh, about uh, modernist editing and the Richardson Project. Um, there's been a series of workshops, uh, HRC workshops, organised by Brian Randall, um, and uh, called the New Modernist Editing. And the, the, the sort of question, the research question for those workshops was, is there anything about editing modernism that is actually different from editing which has, which has gone before, or will early modern 18th century romantic scholars, um, editors, just come to us and say that you're reinventing the wheel here? Um, and one of the things we, we sort of identified as potentially something different about modernist editing is modernism's experimentalism and its self-conscious experimentalism and the way in which it's kind of... Uh, modernist writers are kind of genetic editors avant la lettre in that they are very aware of the process and, and of, of the text as a work in process all, all the time. So Dirk van Huller, who's one of the most prominent genetic um, scholars, and if you're interested in looking at genetic scholarship, I would, I would suggest you go first to Dirk's work. Um, he, he suggested that the, the new modernist editing should adopt a, a genetic approach. Of course, it's a bit self-serving because he's a genetic critic, but there was a very good, very good argument for it. So... Um, the, the Richardson project um, is, is partly a, a, a question of recovery and reparation for a, um, the, or the first author to be described as stream of consciousness, um, not the first use of the term, but the first sort of work of literature to be described as stream of consciousness by May Sinclair in 1918. But somebody who, unlike Proust or Joyce or Wolfe, um, has kind of fallen out of the canon, um, but many of us thought needed to be um, rescued. Um, so it's an AHRC-funded project um, with a team of me, Deborah Longworth, um, Laura Marcus, um, and Joe, who's here. Um, uh, it's funded between 2014 and 2019, 
and we promised to get 10 volumes out in five years, because that's what you do with the HRS, AHRC. <laughs> and I can see Catherine laughing at the back. It was so good to hear Catherine say how long these things take, because we are nowhere near getting the first volume out, um, and we've been at it for four years. Um, but nonetheless, um, you can look forward and despair at how, <laughs> how much more there is to do, or you can look back and be pleased with how much we've done, and we've been very excited. Blessed in having um, two excellent postdocs, Rebecca Bowler and Adam Guy, and two PhD students, Yoni Shanks, who's here, um, uh, as well as a sort of broader team of, um, of editors. Um, although, sadly, um, George Thompson has died, he's, he's a very old Richardson scholar, but again, this points the point to the, <coughs> the, sort of the process of editing Richardson has taken many, many decades. Um, so, but this is what it's going to look like. We're going to have ten volumes, three of which will be the collected letters. I used to put dates after the <laughs> I no longer do. Um, uh, and um, then um, seven volumes of, um, of the fiction. Um, Richardson's great work is Pilgrimage, um, which was published in 13 what she called chapter volumes. The last one uh, was unfinished, March Moonlight. Um, uh, we're going to republish them in six volumes, and then there'll be a separate volume of the shorter fiction. And we didn't actually pitch to Oxford or um, the HRC the idea of another volume of non-fiction, but in fact her non-fiction has been so important to us when we were doing the editing that that seems to make perfect sense. And I'm pretty sure Jacqueline Norton will not be unhappy with that idea. Um, so, uh, that's just a quick quick view of, of the manuscript. Um, and to say so what the characteristics of Richardson's prose are her, the experimental nature of her pose, the prose, um, particularly experiments with punctuation, with ellipsis, breaks, gaps, um, as a way of writing a kind of immersive yet incomplete experience of consciousness, including different modes of attention and the function of memory. So things we're familiar with from what we would call stream of consciousness, a metaphor she hated, uh, by the way. Um, also, um, there are experiments in numbering, ordering, and juxtaposing the different sections of her fiction, creating a sequence that suggests various possible narrative orders, and a technique that might be compared with sort of cut and paste or montage, although Laura Marcus won't let me use the word montage in her hearing because she, she has a very specific idea around montage and, and cinema. Um, what? She's not here. She's not here. No, Somebody might tell her. Um, she might hear the recording. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, and also Richardson's own kind of um, sort of idea of an adventure for readers that she wanted the um, the the work to be a, what she called a creative collaboration between the reader and the author. Um, so encouraging a mode of reading which was not what she which she describes most novels as a conductive tour but where the reader can start from anywhere in the text, kind of beginning, end, or dipping in the middle, and that's actually how she suggests one should read um, uh, Proust, um, but in, in, by implication her own work as well. So um, that, that creates, I think, some particular issues um, for the editor. And what I want to look at is, on the handout, is the question of the italicisation or non-italicisation of the word Zal. 
um, which is uh, a German word for room. Um, and in the context of Pointed Roofs, the first chapter volume of Pilgrimage, um, the Tsar refers to the main meeting room or assembly room in the school where Miriam is working in Hanover um, in, in Germany. Um, now, in the um, manuscript and in the first UK edition, sorry, I'm a joint dual Irish-British citizen now, I should say, GB edition, and that's what I put here. In the first GB edition, um, uh, Zal is not italicised and it's not given at any point a capital letter, which as a German word, it, the noun would normally have um, a capital letter. Um, by the 1938 edition, it still doesn't have a capital letter, but it has become italicised. Um, and this relates to the, the, the different um, status of the, of the 1915 pointed rules and the pointed rules that was published in the collected edition in 1938. Now, when we began editing, me as a complete novice, I assumed that we would use the 1938 edition as the copy text because the 1938 edition was the last one <coughs> by Dorothy Richardson, and that seems like not a question. Okay. Um, as, and as you'll see, all these decisions seem completely uncontroversial at the time, and then they kind of all build up to get me somewhere. But then it was pointed out to, to me that um, the modernism of 1915 is not the same as the modernism of 1938, and surely what you want to produce in your edited text is a version of the modernism of 1915. And I thought, yes, of course, that's, that's absolutely right. And therefore, our task as editors must be to reproduce that moment in 1915 when the readership received pointed roots because that was the 1915 moment of modernism, and that makes perfect sense. But then you discover that, that Richardson's relationship with her editors and her publishers wasn't always a happy one. That what she wanted to do in terms of an experimental form of fiction was not always what happened when the publication actually came out. And Duckworths were quite conservative, particularly in the way they allowed her to use um, punctuation. Um, and you can see some major differences between um, the one manuscript version of pointed views we have um, and what comes out in, in 1915. And one of the things which is, is different is that, that by and large in the manuscript, not consistently, but by and large, Richardson does not differentiate typographically in any way between French, German and English. Okay. So there's a suggestion there which again, it seems to me we ought to follow, that what Richardson wants to represent is that language in the school, the ordinary language of the school, are equally French, English, and German, and it's a kind of multilingual text. It creates a kind of multilingual, multicultural, cross-cultural, cosmopolitan space. Okay? Um, and again, that seemed to me a perfectly reasonable decision, and it's a kind of saying, well, that's what her intention was. But wait a minute. Um, thinking about it, isn't that just what I think modernism is? Mm. Right? That modernism is, in fact, you know, the mark of what defines modernism is it 
It's cross-cultural, it's multilingual, it's multicultural, it's international, not national. <clears throat> How far am I imposing my, or, and, and quite a shared idea, a kind of, almost a sort of post-Finnegan's wake version of what modernism is on this 1915 text? Isn't it much more, more complicated than that? So that's where the, the, what Catherine was talking about in terms of ideology and you know, some of the questions that Rory was bringing in about what you actually do. So what you think when you've got these kind of problems, you think, well, I know what I'll do. I'll create a set of rules about what the editor does, um, and this will, this will solve um, the problem. Um, so um, the rules that, and this is all provisional, but the rules that Adam Guy and I came up with for dealing with points of rules is... Um, is to go with what seems to be mainly the case in the manuscript, which is no distinction um, between, between French and, and German. So we will, we will not italicise any of the, the foreign words, except where it's clearly done for emphasis. So that's the only time that we will use um, italics. Um, and, and also, um, we worked... Our first assumption was that what Richardson wanted was to produce the correct version of French or German. And sometimes the compositor has made a mistake, and you can see the compositor has made a mistake. So her, her clear intention is to have a multilingual text in which the German and French are correct. So we'll go back to where the compositor has made a mistake and we'll produce the original intention, we'll put in the correct. German, which would mean, for example, um, capitalising Tsar, because that would be the correct um, uh, 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 German, um, we thought. Um, uh, so we had a, we had a rule that um, if the error is not Richardson, <coughs> the manuscript variant, um, uh, if Richardson had made an error in the manuscript that had been continued into um, GB1, we would correct her error, um, just as we would correct an error in English spelling. Um, and where an error in the manuscript had been corrected in the first British tradition, we would have followed GB1. Okay, so that seemed great. You have got a set of rules, you know what you're doing. But then it becomes more complicated because it turns out... Um, that there was a reform in German spelling in 1901, the great orthographic conference of 1901, which regularised spelling for the newly united Germany, Austria and Switzerland. And it looks as if, I mean, we really need to consult proper German experts, but it looks as if, from our initial research, that Richardson sometimes used forms that might have been in common usage in Hanover at the time, but are no longer considered correct in German. So what, what do you do about that? Equally, Richardson often produces not language as it was written, but phonetically as the character speaks it. So um, if you look at uh, the handout, um, first of all you have Zal, but then in the last um, spoken sentence is Fräulein, who's the um, sort of mister, headmistress of the school, Ansien zum Haus gehen, so get dressed to go out, her order. Um, and there in the manuscript, um, the, the, the phonetic pronunciation of Ansien, um, uh, where the emphasis is on the an, has been underlined, um, and she uses three dashes to, to express 
um, the gaps between the, the, the syllables, um, and she introduces an extra H to emphasize those, those gaps. Um, and that's, and then in the first British edition, that's taken out. Um, and uh, the, what, sorry, the first emphasis on Anne is taken out, but it's more or less, more or less reproduced. Um, so obviously there are arguments where you can't correct the German either to some original correct local German or to standard German as it is now, which would be another option, because. Richardson is, is playing around with the language. And this becomes even more clear in um, examples where the girls start to uh, mix up languages um, uh, and the spelling then becomes very, very complicated. So in um, the uh, example that begins Jimmy's voice further down, um, Jimmy's voice came rounded in giggling this is during a French lesson. Oh, mademoiselle, j'ai une potato, pardon, pomme de terre, je mean. Um, <laughs> and, and mademoiselle responds, veux dire, veux dire, qu'est-ce que vous me racontez là? Um, uh, and then Gertrude starts speaking a kind of long, uh, uh, nonsense. Ah, oh, la, la, boom, bong. Um, and, and mademoiselle inter intercedes with tisez-vous, tisez-vous, but then her mispronunciation of the German j'ai trude. Okay, so um, we have all kinds of complicated questions about, about how, you, how you treat that. And at the moment, um, sort of, although those general rules that I described are still the ones we've been used, I've had to, we've, we've had to sort of resort to a process of, of annotation. Um, so, for example, in the, in the next quotation, um, uh, and I'll, I'll come to an end pretty quickly, um, to let Joe take over, but in the, in the next quotation, um, the term um, classical knots, so there's a, a, a big scene in the middle of the novel where all the girls have their hair washed by, the, uh, by a woman who comes in speaking Plattdeutsch, no German, which is another complication which I won't get into, um, uh, which, which then Richardson produces, reproduces phonetically. Um, and all the girls are, are supposed to do, have these, their hair done as a kind of classical knot. Um, and the way that klassischer is, is, um, is spelt is sometimes the girls mixing up clash and clashish in German and clash in English. Um, um, but always using um, C, not K. Um, and again, that could be an issue that is to do with the German reform, that Klassisch, particularly in Hanover, would have been spelled with a C, but now would never be spelled with a C um, in German. Um, but equally, I've just ended up, at the moment, using the notes to explain what's going on. And, I mean, um, Catherine was saying, this can end up sounding quite patronising. So when I explain, for example, in note 8 over the page... Um, where Mademoiselle says, tell me what is this terrible classic not? That not is Mademoiselle's phonetic pronunciation of the English not, or possibly her phonetic pronunciation of the German knot. Um, it does seem kind of very, very heavy-handed, but I'm not, I'm not really sure what else to do. And just on the subject of annotation... Um, I, I happen, just by coincidence, to have included my longest note on, on this page, which I thought might be of 
might be concerned. And honestly, honestly, my notes aren't usually this long, but just, just look at those notes and how many words on the page they actually refer to. Mm. So it goes from comment and statue... Um, uh, no, sorry, it goes from... Sorry. Miriam's mind groped down to the mirror of Venus. So uh, a very short paragraph, um, but that includes notes 10 to 14, which take up most of the rest of the page. Now, I haven't got time here, but I could justify that. But that <laughs> annotation is, is not what I'm talking about today. I, I, the, the, the main point I want to make is that these, these very tiny decisions, um, like do you italicise the word Zal or not, are actually the result of a whole series of decisions. Um, and once you've made those decisions, you've also made these much larger ideological decisions about whether what you're creating is a kind of remain pointed roofs, which is all about a European space, or a Brexit pointed roofs, <laughs> where you include the markers of locality and nation, um, and I leave many of those in rather than regularising it as this international text. Thanks, Bill. So, the Shakespeare therapist is probably available. Great. Over to Jeff. Yeah. Okay, if you both would come in, I've already decided on what my Scott's talking about. I've also show your um, online exhibition. I'm going to change tack slightly and um, talk about the editing of letters. So, the other big stream of our project on state is thinking about. Um, Richardson's multitudinous correspondence. So I'm trying to do two things. Can I do it? Uh, okay. So um, yeah. So this I'm going to change up a little bit. But I am absolutely going to pick up on this point that Scott closed with, which is the question of annotation, um, and to think about. I suppose here, pick up several of the threads actually about. Um, in terms of what Scott said about what it is modernism, uh, and also within a big major project to be doing two very different kinds of editorial tasks, one of which is to deal with fiction and the other one is to deal with letters, and what the kind of the strain and the kind of often the points of tension are about trying to kind of wear two hats when it comes to the editorial process. Um, so I put up the exhibition here because it is one of the um, we might not have something out of the print yet, but we have had wonderful things kind of come out of the project so far. And I think this is one of them, which is our online exhibition, which um, in a sense showcases some of the editorial work that's already gone on, particularly in relation to the letters. Um, so this, um, this website, which I sort of would encourage you to go look at, is a way of sort of um, mapping and kind of demonstrating and putting out to the public domain some of the kind of um, key strands that we've pursued in terms of thinking about what the job of the letters is. And I suppose I put these kind of images up to kind of think about what is it, what is the work that letters do alongside the work of, of fiction or we're kind of trying to reconstruct uh, an author and an author's work. Particularly kind of important for Richardson, who was a prolific letter writer. Um, to answer that question about what uh, letters can do, I mean in the sense we have here in the exhibition three about the strands we've got Letters that, I'm thinking thematically, look at the notion of the modernist network, and obviously 
Richardson was very, very uh, prolific in her letter writing with Breyer, one of the key uh, cultural producers, if you like, of the modernist period. Uh, we've also got letters here doing work of thinking about the publishing history, the text. And then we've also got this sort of third stream, which I'm going to try and pick up on a little bit with you now through some concrete examples. We've turned it jokes and fragments, but to kind of think about absolutely Richardson's letters not just being business letters, but also you know, um, expressions of affect and uh, lived experience and relationship and that kind of sense of the very kind of rich texture of cultural history that you get from, um, from letters too. Um, so the work that letters can do, I suppose in a sense, is kind of institutions <coughs> in its own way. We can think about cultural production, the modernist networks, the publishing history of the text, but also this kind of, as I said, this texture of cultural history that one gets from, from letter editing. And I think the question then I'm going to kind of put before us really is, um, when is um, annotation required? What is the role of annotation on one's editing letters? And when do we have to accept that we reach a kind of limit as editors when we can either over-annotate um, or where our kind of ability to reconstruct cultural history through annotation of letters actually runs up against a kind of Kind of block, which is that we just cannot recover some of the more kind of opaque or elliptical references that one might come across. Um, so if I'm thinking then about le letter editing, I'm kind of also thinking about tussling with something quite profound about modes of reading. So um, Scott mentioned that sense of what it means to edit ed modernism, what, and what that, that kind of sense of whether there are um, specific issues around editing modernism. Does modernism present particular problems or issues or even conceptual questions that we kind of run up against when we're kind of trying to edit either the fiction or the letters of the period? Um, when we turn to the material of epistolatory documents, we expect to retrieve something in the realities of material existence. We expect to um, be able to retrieve to some degree life, or at least bits of life. Um, but it seems to me that that kind of mode of reading and the expectation that we can reconstruct something about life um, and to kind of the lived experience of something like Richardson and the modernist network itself is that we come up against a kind of um, a problem, I think, uh, in terms of how we've been taught to read modernism, um, particularly, of course, modernist fiction, which is to understand the kind of distillation of life as something that becomes epiphanic. Um, so we're thinking about pilgrimage, or particularly uh, what like Joyce, you know, the role of the epiphany is also one of the key aesthetic um, tropes of modernism, the idea that life is distilled uh, into, this kind of, into these moments that are often very kind of obliquely represented. So that if we're going to try and represent, uh, try and recover something about material of lived existence, aren't we running against immediately a kind of problem about how we've been taught to read modernist textuality? Now, I think there's a particular problem, I'll go back to my PowerPoint, there's a particular problem about reading um, Richardson, I think, too. Oops. Image, the kind of sheer, sheer extent of, of pilgrimage, and that's not quite what this actually 13th novel published uh, in part posthumously, which um, comes out in 1967. Um, so we're up against the kind of problem in pilgrimage that I think is perhaps not unique to pilgrimage, but particularly acute, um, which is that what you have in this uh, series, in this uh, series of chapter novels, as Richardson called them, is a representation of her own life, reconstituted, processed, uh, symbolised, if you like, 
uh, in protagonist Miriam Henderson, um, the relationship between the life, the kind of lived experience of Richard himself, and the lived experience of um, Miriam Henderson becoming really quite enmeshed and problematic. Um, if we're trying to kind of read in modernist terms and try and kind of eschew any notion of trying to get some kind of truth uh, or some kind of biographical model uh, for Richardson, it becomes very difficult because it constantly kind of drives you in that direction as an editor to try and recapture something of the kind of cultural history and cultural references that are being used in the text. And Scott mentioned the work of George Thompson, um, wonderful, rich work um, that tried to recover something of the kind of if you like the cultural history that stands behind Pilgrimage in his um, incredible work on annotating these novels. Um, this is um, just a, a quote from Thompson's notes on Pilgrimage. Um, and I think he's, what he's trying to do here is um, pick up a reference um, from the tunnel of the fourth novel of the uh, series that um, makes a reference to Tekin's Teens. It's a kind of uh, symbol and signifier that's used in the text. It seems to have some kind of material kind of um, location. Uh, Thompson goes looking for either the kind of shop or the kind of tea brand, and what he very quickly discovers as he tries to produce an annotation for this is that, of course, it's being conflated in the text. It's not actually a kind of, if you like, a real material trace in the sense it's not kind of, uh, even in terms of social geography, it's not picking up on a specific location in London and talking about uh, a particular brand of teas in any kind of concrete uh, way. So it's very difficult to analyze because what she's saying is to inflate a shop with a brand. And in any case, in, in the text of pilgrimage, the reason that Tekin Steeds is there is to act as this kind of um, symbol or signifier for kind of psychic and emotional work that's, that's going on in Miriam's life at that time. So the point being, when we come to annotating uh, pilgrimage, and obviously Scott's given us some wonderful examples already, the complexity of it, what we shouldn't really be looking for then, I guess, is some kind of, um, the, kind of the truth, if you like, of the material trace. So um, that's, that's one thing, right? that's one kind of project, and that's one set of, kind of um, issues to address in ways to talk fiction. But is our expectation as editors and indeed readers of letters, even if they're modernist letters, um, is it different? Are we actually, what are we attempting to do when we annotate a writer's correspondence? What do we want the work of annotations to do? What do we want as readers when we come to a writer's collected um, letters? What, what do we want to kind of um, achieve by, by reading them? So I'm going to turn to think about the letters now. Um, and what I'd like to do is hand out my name. Sure. Right. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to try and do some kind of close reading, focusing on a couple of concrete examples from two letters. There's, a, there's one letter going around. It's um, reproduced on both sides of the sheet. So do you want to turn this over? Um, so, let me think about letters. So, the question is, when we come to modern life, the modern 
writing, okay? And this sort of, um, this tussle that goes on, and it's an editor with how you kind of chase down cultural and personal references, seemingly obscure allusions, political events, dates, intimate relationships. What is the editor about in this part? Um, I think in my own experience so far of editing, and you very quickly become immersed in an endeavor to reconstruct a life through its ephemeral detail, its omissions, its misrememberings, its affective timbre, and its interconnections. Just a line of greeting writes Richardson to Blyer as she begins a letter to her on Christmas Day, 1927. A simple opening line, yet in many respects, it articulates something of the truth about the secondary status the letter holds within the true culture. Just a line of greeting. And yet, in the context of this Richardson project, this body of epistolatory materials requires conceptualization as modernist life writing in its own right. It casts radically different light on our reading practices and on our understanding of our role as readers and editors. As an act of communication with a recipient in mind, the letter represents a dialogue, even when we do not possess the reply. And that's one issue right up front, because what happens when you have correspondence, but you don't have the other half of that correspondence. The letter is also a repository that contains thick description, to use the sociological term, of the material conditions in which modernism is embedded. Reading against the grain of the modernist reading practice I just described, that idea of reading for the epiphany, if you like, um, the letter's record of material trace requires a materialist reconstructed practice which remakes our modernist, our modernist life. This time-consuming, compelling, but often frustrating editorial practice of annotating letters produces a very different kind of life narrative and very a very different model of writerly production. So if what we saw in George's attempt there to kind of chase down that kind of uh, that reference to Tegan's Tegan pilgrimage is one model, uh, and we've got to kind of resist that choice perhaps when we're editing fiction, do we? I don't know if that's the question. Um, it seems to me that when we come to annotating letters, editing letters, we have to respond to that call. So here's one small prosaic example, and I'll turn now to the letter in your hands. So in the late um, summer, autumn of 1928, Richardson and her husband, the illustrator Alan O'Neill, take a trip to Romney Marsh in the southeast of England. The second time yeah. that the map of Kent This trip has been long in the planning, not least because Richardson has been much exercised by the apparent difficulties of getting there from London on public transport. Train travel per preferred mode presents particular problems with a sporadic timetable and the need to be collected by the host, the illustrator John Austin, who's a friend of, of Alan Ogles. So all of this I glean from the letters that are sort of on in your hands, uh, written uh, from Richardson to Austin earlier in the summer of 28. But of course, what happens when you're editing letters is that kind of much awaited trip is not in any case, in, in the kind of three, in the course of its three days, are completely irrecoverable. Because while she's actually with Austin, she's not writing to him. You lose it, right? So um, the anxious letters lead up to the trip, there's no letters written in the course of that visit. But the correspondence, of course, resumes again with thank you letters, probably the whole name is the thank you letter. But the actual visit itself, um, the social encounter, at least as she would describe it to Austin himself, is a lost object. Never going to go through the public. Um, so we have the thank you letter in front of us. So it starts, Dear Tommy and John, that Russell travelling box carried us to London in great style. 
So my job as editor is to produce an annotation, yet the life of 1928 is something of a lost country. I mean, unlike that kind of Tegan's tease example, though this is not a symbol, it's like fictional, it's something that actually means something if you like in volunteering things. Now I'm going to spare upon the description of the laborious hours of Tripoli to reconstruct the job from Kent, to look at transport options, routes, timetables, and even I ended up reading the history of bus models and bus companies in Kent in the late 1920s. But all it boils down to, all that work, is footnote two, which is on the Not complaining, I'm just saying. <laughs> the Hunt and Russell Motor Service ran a London Vauxhall Express service from uh, 1927. The vehicles on this service were Guildford coaches. So, um, I won't moan, I'll show you something around the cognitive, which is an advert from 1929 for the Guildford coach. So here's an image of that Russell travel box. So that kind of first line that opens the, opens the letter. <coughs> so chasing down the detail, what opens out from that condensed little sentence, that condensed little phrase, I should say, opaque as it is to 21st century eyes, is the rich, expansive, affective flashing out the quotidian experience of this new mode of travel in 1928. So rather than life distilled into form, as in the modernist text, this seems to me to be life proliferating, it opens out, what's my flowering of detail here. Richardson continues in the letter with a mildly humorous description of Ogle being trapped with a verbose conductor who, whether he likes it or not, insists on giving him a long commentary Kent landscape. Now, there are other moments in which editorial research again produces a kind of flowering of the particular in this letter. So, if we a little bit further down, I think I've marked it as kind of the three on that copy. Richardson writes, quote, In the evening, feeling warm and loose ending, we went to cinema, our small local hall and saw between melodramas an excellent one-reel film of a weird bird newly arrived from Central Africa. Now, this letter is written from her address in 32 Queen's Terrace, and so research again reveals that what she's talking about, when she describes that small local hall, is the impressively named Frognall Bijou Palace, one fire from Shiro's Homestead. Now this is a recent image, um, and I use a recent image, uh, partly because that's all I can find, of uh, what was the Frognall Vinci Palace, but also because actually quite helpful, I think, for our purposes, it collapses the time frames between life then, in 1928, and life now, and I think there's more to say, and I haven't probably got time to say it, about psychogeography, and also our effective investment, and this picks up on what um, Scott was saying, I'm sure, I didn't get, unfortunately, to hear Catherine's keynote this morning, but that sense of our kind of investment, our kind of what we take in, but what we sort of put in to the editorial, what we bring into the editorial process. Something captured here, I think, about the fact that you know, we're photographing this kind of building now and trying to reconstruct it through life 1928. Uh, and it does interest me, that sense of a material history of modernism being partly about our desire to recapture the texture of life back then. So Richardson then goes on to tell the Austens in the letter more about contemporary events in the London cinema world. She writes, Martin Luther is under the vanguard in the Pavilion. Now, the Pavilion was uh, regarded as the premier art cinema in London. The film that she's referring to is Luther by the German filmmaker Hans Kaiser, the silent film released in 1928. Again, this is a little bit of a cheap image. It is older, but it was actually taken in 1949. 
But I use it again this, this kind of sense of evoking a past era because I again want to say something about stress this point about something of our own investment, our attempt to recapture life in the editorial process. And then as, as an editor then, if you think about what, where this letter is taking me, it's ranged across such different cultural domains <coughs> in researching uh, that the materiality of life and cultural experience becomes really profoundly foregrounded. Well, I guess what I'm trying to say is we really deal with stuff when we edit letters in particular. Okay, I'm going to stop. Maybe another, uh, another few minutes. I just want to kind of look at another letter. So, um, project you find. Again, just one sheet. Just, Experience and the worlds of affect and embodied experience 
Um, the texture here becomes really fine-grained. Um, now, Richardson carries on in this letter to talk about a visit to Robert Marsh, uh, and she continues to riff on the theme of the landscape. So just reading a little bit further down. Now remaineth the marsh, on which his houselet with studiolet is built, endless distance with endlessly far-off things taking the light, a purring leisurely tour incarnate through Conrad's country, beer at the walnut tree, a perfect old brown student inn, much talk, I quite love the marsh, and if I had to give up cornlets, there I'd go, I think, in spite of the increase of Noah's arcs there, they are lost on the vast sky. Well, okay, so I'm going to annotate here. The somewhat fey tone, um, which effectively alternates between sort of biblical pastiche, remaineth, and suffixes that denote diminutives, house, studio, color, tells us something, I think, about the relationship between Richardson and Collie, the kind of closer connection between them, in which Richardson becomes slightly belittling with the Austens and their lifestyle. Uh, but here again, as editor, we get drawn into more material detail. Conrad's country, of course, refers to Joseph Conrad. Conrad, it turns out, lived at Cable House in Alston between 1910 and 1919, moved to the Marsh area from Essex to work for So there's something here about the literary cognitive map that Richardson's using. How do we annotate that? Um, and then these other references, much more material references. The Walnut Tree Inn. Well, uh, as it transpires, the Walnut Tree Inn off into Kent is still open. And, uh, Obviously, one of my editorial decisions is whether I want to go and check if they're still preserved here and what quality the beer's like. It's a material choice like the cinema buildings in and around north and central London. It's, as I say, it's still open. But here's my final point. I want to come to this kind of. The point I'm trying to make here to finish on is the point of our own limitations, okay? And the point of where the kind of. Um, well, the nature of annotation kind of runs a drive, like, because you cannot, you can't, you cannot kind of trace um, everything. So she makes this reference to Noah's Ark. So I luckily managed to find a fairly evocative image from Romney Marsh. I didn't take this photograph, but I found it quite awfully. Um, and I suppose I'm not using the image of the boat. I'm trying to uh, myself reform the idea of Noah's Ark. Because um, here, cultural history proves rather hard to plot. Um, it's a very oblique reference. Does Richardson refer, is she referring to the holes of old folks abandoned on the marshes? Well, it turns out when I do a little bit of research that Romney Marsh has a long and notorious history as an area for sheep smuggling for wool that starts all the way back in the 13th century and hits a peak in the 18th century, apparently. Certainly, as this view suggests, there are boats sitting decaying marooned under the expanses of the sky on, 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 on the star of Romney Marsh. So, what happens here is that my own interpretive skills run around. What are the limits of our capabilities, our capacities as editors? Reading both the letter to Austin and the letter to Picardi's palimpsests, working to open up the references, the allusions, the locations in time and place, our conceptual practice of modernist reading and editorial <coughs> must, of necessity, shift to accommodate this complex, multi-layered version of life writing. Undoubtedly, its challenges require that we start to learn to read rather differently, against the grain of our understanding of what it means to read modernism. It requires our deepened understanding of the lives lived in the context of its production. And I want to conclude with this kind of this description of, of, of you know, life being proliferated rather than distilled, life expanded and granular, yet in its entirety not recoverable. 
So we have to sit with a model of expansion, but also limitation. And it's a measure of our skill set as editors of modern letters, how we work between those two poles. Thanks, Ray. Brilliant. Um, food lunch has arrived. Um, so this is, has been a, a, a series of talks this morning without space for, for Q&A, but we've got a really relaxed afternoon where I think we can try and get a much more of, a, of an engaged kind of um, contribution from people, so there's much more time. I still think we should try and keep two times, so come back here for half past two. You're welcome to come and have some lunch next door, but also go and enjoy the square. Uh, beautiful time of year, best yeah. time of year to go and see the square. Do take lunch down and have yeah, yeah, you know, some there. It's lovely. Uh, and we'll see you back here at home too. And thank you, yeah. Scott and Joe and Joy. Thank you.